Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. here today. My name is Chris Causey. Um, sorry, I'm so random. I'm like listening to that music. That just makes me want to have swagger. I just want to be cool when I listen to that song. I'm like, man, I wish I was cool and I could wear a coat like that. I can't, but it just makes me feel cool. And I'm so glad you're here today because um, today we're going to continue this series um, called You're Not the Boss of Me. Uh, if you were here last week, I introduced this series. If you're new this week, let me introduce it again. It's this idea, this whole series is built around this one thing in our life that seeks to try to control us. It's emotions. See, I don't have to know your life story. I don't have to travel around with you to know this about you and about me. That often those moments that we wish we could redo or undo were those moments when the emotions were in control of you. Those moments when the anger was so kind of just moving and kind of coursing through your veins that you said what you said, you did what you did, and the moment it came out of your mouth, you tried to grab it and you couldn't. The comment you made to your spouse, the thing you said to your kids, what you did at work, what no one sees when you're driving down the road and people around can't drive and you're the only good driver in this entire region, right? Those moments where the emotions take control over you where we forget how to wave with a whole hand and we only use one finger, right? And that this series is about you and I learning to take control of that which tries to control us, our emotions. And last week, we kind of introduced a framework for how to navigate emotions, but ultimately dealing with that biggest hope of the God of the semicolon. And today I want to push into an emotion that's kind of devious, where most of those moments we wish we could redo and undo are pretty apparent to us what those emotions are. There's one emotion that lurks beneath the surface. There's one emotion that we don't even notice most of the time. But the challenge is, is it's just as destructive as the other emotions. It's an emotion that can rob the very joy, the very pleasure in this moment that you find yourself. It's an enemy to you and I. And yet most of us go about our day without even noticing it's there. And yet one of the wisest men, one of the wisest persons who've ever lived, recognized its danger and wanted to make sure that his sons and daughters, as they were being prepared to one day become the rulers of Israel, understood how truly destructive this emotion could be. And so when he set about to write his kind of king and queen preparation guide, when he set about writing his parenting manual, the book that we now call the book of Proverbs, Solomon, the king of Israel, almost 3,000 years ago, wrote down a sentence about one of these sinister emotions that lurks beneath the surface that shapes our lives. If you have the Encounter Church app that Jason referenced, it's already preloaded for you. If not, you'll see the passage on the screen behind me as I read it out loud. But this passage comes from Proverbs 14:30. He points out, he begins, with a heart of peace gives life to the body. Envy rots the bones. Now, the thing to know about um, the book of Proverbs was that Solomon did write this book in preparation, trying to prepare his sons and daughters to rule Israel. This is a parenting manual. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible because 
Almost every single proverb was written to be memorized. Solomon understood he had a very limited time frame with his kids before they would step in to rule. And so he was intentional with the wisdom of God about crafting statements that were pithy and portable that they could memorize. Books were uncommon in those days. Scrolls were uncommon. And so you had to make sure that what you said was memorable. And so he writes this memorable sentence. He actually uses this uh, as kind of a word picture, which was one of Solomon's favorite things to do. It's a word picture of two different individuals. He shows a heart at peace. Um, He's using a body part of one person to capture this one individual. And then he uses the body part of another person to capture this other way. So you've got this healthy individual and you've got this unhealthy individual. But one of the things that Solomon does, it's, it's, it's easy to miss in the English, but Solomon writes this in a different language. The first half of the sentence talks about the health being complete and whole all the way through. The other part, his word selection points to health on the outside. No one would know, but what's on the inside is actually rotting and dying and decaying. And so his, this is why this is so clever. He's giving his son and his daughter a picture of two people that on the surface look exactly the same. He's like, son, I want you to pay attention because sometimes health isn't obvious just by looking skin deep. You've got to go down beneath the skin to the very surface and the substance. And that's when he paints these two contrasting pictures. These, these things are meant to be memorized and thought about. And what Solomon was trying to communicate to his son and his daughter was, look, Envy is your enemy. And you need to be aware, son, it's going to try to creep into the royal courts. It's going to try to creep into your life, and it's going to try to creep into the lives of people around you. Envy is an enemy. It's the worst type of enemy, in fact. And he lays out two things I just want to point out about envy. He he points out, first of all, that it's in your bones. Now, he doesn't literally mean that envy lives inside your bones. This is, again, a word picture. What he's trying to convey is that envy is often hidden. You don't see it. You can see when someone's angry. You can see when someone's sad. But it's really easy to miss when there's jealousy and envy. In fact, we, we're even okay confessing, right? I mean, you go home, you've had a frustrating day, and you're like, man, my coworker made me so mad. But it's a little different to go home and be like, my coworker got a brand new car. I was so jealous, right? The only people I actually have noticed that do it, that do confess it are kids because they've learned, they haven't learned you shouldn't say that out loud yet. My daughter will say out loud, I'm so jealous, but I don't hear adults say that. It's not something we say. It, we're embarrassed to admit we're envious. We're embarrassed to admit that we're jealous. So what do we do? As we grow into adults, we push it underneath the surface. It stays hidden. But there are two places I think it comes up. Just to, just to highlight two little moments. One is in social media, right? Just you, you sitting on your couch doing your thing. Pull out that phone, start scrolling through. You know, there's that friend. They're on that vacation. Sunset's perfect. Hashtag no filter, right? And then you're scrolling through. And then there's that other friend. And there they are, all their kids are taking a picture together and they're smiling and they're like, hashtag only took one try. And you're like, you know what? Last time I had a family picture, I lost a child on purpose. 
Right? And then there's another friend and they're in the gym and they're like, get my swole on, can't, hashtag can't stop, won't stop, feel the burn. Right? And you're like, mm-hmm. And what are you doing? You're sitting on the couch in your sweatpants eating ice, ice cream. You sweaty and stinky, but it's not because you didn't, like you've been working out. It's because you didn't wash yet. Right? And you're like, hashtag dirty and smelly on the couch. But binging Netflix shows, right? Like, we don't do that. We don't hashtag the real moments. But we scroll through and we watch what all their people are doing and we just sit there and, you know, we're like smiling as we flip through. But on the inside, we're ripping them apart. Or, or we're sitting jealous and angry because, you know what? Last time I went on vacation, my bum husband took me to wherever, You know, it's like the sunset looked the same where I went because we didn't go anywhere. You know, it must be nice to have a husband that'll take you somewhere. Oh, you had a plane ticket. No, my husband's just plain. And we do this. Now, no one knows. But we scroll. We scroll. I don't have a problem when I look at Facebook and seeing people sitting in their sweatpants eating ice cream watching Netflix. You know, me doing this for the seventh hour today because I don't have a life. No, we don't do that. But see, this is where envy will show up sometimes. In fact, I would wager that some of us have probably started unfollowing or hiding or avoiding certain people on bad days. There are certain people you won't follow because you just don't want to see 100% hashtag. You don't want to see how good they look when they're working out because you don't care. Because all it is is a reminder how much you don't work out. And we fall into this trap and envy comes up. One of those moments, it pokes its little head up. Another moment it comes up, it's actually really interesting, um, is this thing that I'm sure you've never done, but other humans do this. Your friends probably do this. You don't, okay? Um, in fact, it's this interesting idea. Um, almost every culture, almost every language has a word for it, except for English, which I just think shows how committed we are to hiding this reality about ourselves. The Japanese have a saying. In fact, they go, it goes like this. It says, to see... Um, Um, It says, to watch others suffer is like honey for the soul. Nietzsche, who's a German philosopher, said to see others suffer does one good. I mean, the Germans have a word, they call it schadenfreuden, but almost every language has a word that means deriving pleasure from someone else's displeasure. I mean, that is what America's Funniest Home Videos was. You sat and you watched other people suffer. Okay? Now, have you ever taken a step back? That's messed up about us. Right? I mean, you don't do it, but your friends do it. You know, your friends get really frustrated. That coworker comes in and all they can do is brag about how awesome their new girlfriend or their new boyfriend is and how much money they make and what degrees they have and how good they look and fill in the blank. They're just awesome. And then one day they come in, they're not as excited. There's not as much awesomeness. And they're like, hey, how's it going? They're like, hey, you know, what's, what's wrong? We broke up. And you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. But in the inside, you're like, yes. Or, you you know, you, you got these kids, this perfect family. Kids never do anything wrong. Then one day you hear one of them gets caught doing drugs. And you're like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's so bad. But on the inside, you're like, yes, their kids stink too. Right? But we do this. 
We derive pleasure out of watching other people's pain. In fact, they've even done studies. Uh, they noticed that British soccer fans took more joy, derived more pleasure out of watching the rival team lose than even experiencing their team winning. Like, that's jacked up. That really is messed up about us. And yet it's a very human thing. It's why 3,000 years ago, Solomon could write about envy. It's why almost every language has a word that derives and kind of defines this unique thing to be human. And where does that nastiness come from? It comes from the inside. It comes from envy. Because we begin to focus on what other people have and what we have not. And since we can't have it, we love to watch when they don't have it anymore. <clears throat> and it's just envy. And Solomon wants his kids to know, like, envy is there. You need to become aware. It's hiding. It's lurking. It's, it's kind of underneath the surface. But don't doubt it's not there because it's your enemy. And it's out to get you. <clears throat> now, you could almost say, well, if it's hidden, then what harm is it doing? Which is why Solomon makes sure he, he wants you to understand this other piece that he doesn't just say it's in your bones. He says it's harmful. It's, it's rotting the bones. This word death and decay. You see, envy, he recognizes, has an appetite that's never satisfied. You ever notice that? Envy, if it had a mailing address, it's always over there. It's never where you are here. It's always over there. It's their relationship, their house, their car, their bank account, their look, their, their hair, their athleticism. It's always there. It's never here. Thank you. And the challenge with envy is not just that it's hidden. It's that it's harmful. And that Solomon wants to train his kids to recognize you need to not just become aware that it's there. You need to realize that it has devastating effects in your life in the course. What it does is it starts to rob your focus. You're so focused on what's over there that you miss what's here. And what happens is you stop appreciating what you have here. You stop, you stop appreciating what you have around you. And by focusing on what those people have, you start to gripe and you start to complain. There's not contentment where you are. And over time, it starts to damage. In fact, Solomon had seen this. He's a king. But prior, if you go back and look at Solomon's history, prior to Solomon becoming the king, Solomon had witnessed how envy had almost destroyed his father's household. He'd watched sons and daughters of the king, his father, fight and tear each other apart because they were jealous of one another. They were envious of what each other had. He had witnessed the devastating effects of envy in his own household, and he knew if they weren't careful, it could wreck their life too. That it's a devastating appetite that's never satisfied. It always cries out for more. Uh, there was a, a story I came across recently. Um, I guess I was on this English reading kick because this is another story that happened in England. Um, but it was this uh, medical journal report about this 17-year-old kid from Bristol. Um, he had his entire life had eaten only two things, Pringles and um, chips from the local pub, which were essentially French fries. So this kid, as a 17-year-old, 
for his entire life had eaten Pringles and French fries. Only thing the kid had eaten. And at 17, he was completely blind. Unrepairably blind. Because his appetite for those two things were so depleting to his body that eventually what happened is the lack of vitamins, the lack of nutrients led to his blindness. And this is what Solomon understood. He's like, this appetite, if left unchecked, leads to blindness. It leads to blindness in what's right in front of you. It leads to blindness in what you already have. And it leads to blindness in those that you love. Because it doesn't just damage you. It damages relationships too. In fact, James, who is the half-brother, brother of Jesus, picks up on this idea of envy in his letter um, in the New Testament, almost about a thousand years later, he continues this notion of envy and he actually points out how truly devastating envy is. He even goes as far to say envy can kill. And when you read that, you're like, oh, James, you're overreacting. Like envy doesn't kill. But yet, if you go back and you look at his brother's situation, when Jesus is arrested, what you find is what drove those men to get him arrested was envy. You can go check Mark's letter, Mark 15, 10. Mark says that what drove the religious leaders to arrest Jesus and ultimately to lead to his murder was envy. James had seen firsthand what envy does. He lost a brother because of it. And now he's writing a letter to a church that's caught up in envy, and he actually boils it down in a way that gets a little too close to home. He goes as far as to say that all the disputes in your life and in my life often come down to one, two, three people, however many mixed up in this thing, all wanting their way and refusing to go it your way. I mean, I don't have to know about your last like marital dispute. I don't have to know the last thing about your siblings, your kids fighting or you fighting with your siblings to know that it probably hinged on two people standing eye to eye saying, I want it this way. And the other one saying, I want it this way. And neither one refusing to get out of the way. That oftentimes what's at the core of most anger, disputes, battles, frustrations, and fights is two people that just want it their way. And refuse to do it any other way. In fact, I would encourage you, next time you get in a fight, next time you find yourself in that moment, just verbalize it. Like Solomon already said the first thing. Make, just let's go ahead and acknowledge it's there. So next time you're in that battle, just say, time out. Pastor said we should do this. I'm frustrated with you because I want to play golf on Saturday. And that's it. I want to play golf on Saturday. I want it my way. And the other person saying, okay, I'm frustrated with you because I want you here on Saturday because there's some things that need to be done here on Saturday. That's what I want. And then what you'll notice is at least you're both on the same page of what it is that you want. No more hiding, no more dodging, no more redefining or kind of being sneaky or pulling out cards while I let you do this and you didn't let me do that. It's just like, let's put it on the table. And oftentimes, with mature adults, just the realization that you are being a toddler and wanting it my way or the highway is enough to kind of correctly check yourself in the process. And this is what James is saying. He's like, look, the, pro the problem is, is that oftentimes it comes down to two people who want it their way, and that's it. 
Envy is at the root of most of our conflict. Because envy's obsessed with getting it my way. Envy's obsessed with my way or the highway. Envy's always trying to draw your attention off of your here and now to what they have over there and that you should have it too. And it robs the peace from you. Peace and envy cannot cohabitate. They cannot coexist. But Solomon, fortunately, doesn't just teach his kids this, this two things about envy. He doesn't just say envy is the enemy. It's hidden and it's harmful. He actually, in this proverb that they memorize, he gives them another way. He says, envy may be your enemy, but it doesn't have to have the victory. Because the first part of that proverb, remember it says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. He's like, no, there's another way. There's another path. And it actually brings peace. It's not obsessed about the peace you don't have. It actually brings peace in the body that you do. And the the way that you foster this kind of peace is contentment, not comparison. It's really easy to fall into the trap of comparison. But as one of my mentors says, you can't win in comparison. No one wins when you compare. Contentment is not the same thing as complacency, though. I think this is important to realize, that you can hear me say contentment, and the challenge becomes that, well, I don't want to become complacent. And contentment and complacency are two different things. Contentment is about being at peace with where you are today. And it gives you the freedom to not be okay with that tomorrow. Complacency is just a complete disregard about your today or your tomorrow. It's it's like, whatever, I don't care. So you can be content and ambitious at the same time. It's possible. It's just about today, where you are today. Envy works by focusing on what you lack today, what you don't have today. Look what they have today. And so envy robs you of a better tomorrow by focusing your attention on all the things you don't have right now today in your life. It, it, it inhibits you. And it, and it tells you, well, if you want happiness, you need to go squeeze it out of that person because they have it and you don't. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but it doesn't work to squeeze happiness out of someone else. It doesn't work in relationships and it doesn't work in life and it doesn't work at work and it doesn't work at home. It never works to put your happiness on the back of someone else. It never plays out. And he's trying to teach his kids to be aware that you can actually experience peace today, not just be focused on what you're lacking today. And so let me give you a couple, as kind of get close to wrapping up, let me give you a couple helpful ways, some practices to foster contentment. How do you and I experience some of this peace that Solomon lays out? The, the first way, kind of the first discipline, is what I would say is to celebrate. Celebrate others. You see, when we try to squeeze out happiness from others because something they have, what we don't have, it never works. But when you realize, hey, you know what? I don't have to compare myself to them. I can celebrate them. I can celebrate their giftedness. I can celebrate their unique abilities. I can celebrate how they are good at sports or how they're so smart. Or I can celebrate my sibling's ability to do one thing where I can't do it. But celebration what others, celebrating what others have is a great way of fostering peace in your own life. 
Because if you're not celebrating, you're probably comparing. And that doesn't work very well. And celebrating is just one of those immediate things you can do. You feel envy boiling up. You're scrolling through that social media feed and you look at that vacation. And I'm so glad that they were able to be there. I should ask them about that the next time I see them. Hey, tell me about how was it? What would you recommend I would do if I ever went there? Or you see your kids and they're like all perfect. Your, your kids are crazy. They take their kids shopping at Target. And, you know, and, and it's an enjoyable experience. They go to the grocery store with their small kids and you, you, you want to leave your kids at the grocery store. You're like, hey, tell me how I've noticed that you seem to have like, it's so easy when you go grocery shopping with all your kids. Like, how do you do that? And they tell, oh, that's so awesome that you figured that out. I'm going to have to try that. See, celebrate makes you a teammate. It doesn't make you a rival. And there's a benefit to that because you can learn, you can, you can grow. In fact, when um, I was kind of just getting started in ministry, I, a couple of my heroes were both authors and speakers, and I noticed they were really good friends. And I knew enough about me as a human to know that, like, trying to imagine what if my, like, one of my really good friends was, like, a better speaker and a better author than I was. It's like, oh, I spoke to... 25,000 people last weekend. Oh, yeah, I spoke to 120,000 in South Korea. It was no big deal, right? I'm like, how does that, like, just functionally, how would that relationship work? And so I remember cornering him in a conference and be like, I got a random question. I noticed you and him are really good friends. Man, I'm just trying to figure this thing out. How do you not get jealous of him? I didn't want to say because he's a better speaker and, like, he's a better author than you. But I'm like, you guys seem really healthy. And there was, like, this core kind of just solidness to him. And he was like, oh, that's a great question. You know what I do? Whenever he publishes a book, I buy 50 of them, and I send them to all of my friends saying, you've got to read his book. This book is amazing. This is the best book I've written all year. I mean, this is the best book I've read all year. Even if it's a book, I wrote a book that year. It doesn't matter. This is the best book I've read all year. I celebrate him. I don't compare myself to him. And that celebration is the secret to our friendship because we are able to appreciate what the other has and what the other can do. And we don't fixate on what we can't. And that, that marked me as like a young 20 something. I was like, man, that is, that's really good. You don't have to, you don't have to live on a stage or have some like global influence to be able to appreciate the wisdom that he said and celebrate, celebrate your sister that you've been jealous of your entire life. Celebrate the good things about your spouse that you miss because you're so focused on what they don't have. Celebrate the parts of your kids that quite honestly drive you insane because it's not the way you would do it or it's not the thing you would do. If they're engaged in an activity that you think is a waste of time, start celebrating it. Celebrate the fact that your kid spends three hours on Fortnite and they can kill and maim all, all of these people around the world. You never know. A kid just won $3 million a few weeks ago on Fortnite. This could be your financial security. Appreciate it, right? Celebrate it. There's a wisdom. And not just celebrating what others have, but appreciate what you have. Appreciation is the second activity. Start to appreciate. Look around your own life and notice what you have. Stop noticing what you don't. Stop fixating and focusing on what's not there. 
and appreciate what is. In fact, this is something Ella and I talk about a lot. There was a couple weeks ago, uh, we were talking, it was bedtime, and I said, Ella, I have a thought for you. Let's imagine a magical spell is cast in this room. And tomorrow, we wake up, and the only things that are here are the things that you've been grateful for, the things that you've appreciated. Because we're in this kind of season where we're always talking about what we want. I want this, I want this, I want this. And like, don't you see these other things you already have? And I realized she doesn't. She doesn't even notice. So I was like, Ella, I wanna, let's, let's imagine this thought experiment. Tomorrow you wake up, and the only things in the room are the things that you've been grateful for. And that you've said, I'm, I appreciate this. Said, so, Ella, tomorrow morning you wake up, what would you have? Uh, Daddy, that's scary. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, sweetie, it is. See, the problem is, is that you're so focused on that one thing you don't have that you didn't get at Target, that you didn't even notice all the things you have in this room when you walked in home. You're so focused on that one thing that's not even important. And you've missed all of this that is. And I would encourage you, this is the same, this thing punches me in the face too. What if tomorrow you only woke up with the things that you thank God for today? I mean, because we lose track of all the little things that we have. We lose track of the roof over our head, the food in our belly. We lose track of the friends that have been there all along. We lose track of the relationships that we have with one another. We lose track of the laughter that's present in our life. We, we miss it because we focus on what we don't. And that little thought exercise, I think, really punctuates this really simple statement that one of those men who I referred to earlier has said before that I think is so spot on. He says, you will never experience life to the full until you decide to fully embrace the life that is in front of you. You will never experience life to the full until you fully embrace the life that's already present with you. You want a better relationship with your husband or your wife? You want a better professional career? You want to fill in the blank? Start with what you have. Focus on that. Because the key is there's this right notion the grass is greener on the other side. No, it's actually wrong biologically, right? Horticulturally speaking, go to Lowe's, Home Depot. They're going to tell you. They don't know what are talking about. The grass is greener on the side you water it. Okay, like that's that's like really 101, but I'm telling you, it, it'll go down deep. The grass is greener where you water it. Water your own grass. Appreciate the partner you have. Appreciate the life, the job that you have. It may not be great. I'm not saying get complacent. I'm just saying practice contentment and that we can do that by celebrating and appreciating those things in our lives. And that if we're willing to celebrate, if we're willing to appreciate, then we'll start to experience profound life change. We'll start to experience this peace that he's talking about. The third one is actually a little less explicit, but it's the entire canvas for which Proverbs is written on. You see, the book of Proverbs, the, the first principle of Proverbs is this, that the, the beginning of wisdom is the proper understanding of who God is. The proper 
perception of God. That's the beginning of wisdom. This is something Solomon would have said multiple times throughout his conversations with his kids. And that for us, the, the most powerful practice isn't the celebration, it isn't the appreciation, it's the meditation on who God is. And that proper perspective brings us into a proper place to appreciate and celebrate even more. I experienced this kind of at a pretty kind of poignant, profound level. Uh, about seven or eight years ago, um, I was speaking in a church in Egypt. And, um, and so I, was, I flew into Cairo and I was traveling up to Alexandria, but I had a few days in Cairo. And the individual who was hosting us, who lived there, said, hey, I want to take you to a part of the city that tourists don't go to. It's a, it's, it's a, a part that's not going to be on your like little book you buy at Barnes and Noble or Amazon that says a must visit. It's actually called garbage city in the English garbage city is a slum of Cairo and it's called garbage city. Cause I just want to keep this picture cause there's just so much in it. It's called garbage city because of this. So Cairo as a city is almost twice the size of New York city population wise, but it has no public transit. And they have no trash pickup process. There's no leave your trash by the side of the road. Dump truck comes and picks it up. It's, there's no process at all. So almost 20 million people, all the trash that goes with 20 million people, and not a single city-sponsored trash pickup service. So what happens? Well, is there's a group of people. Uh, they're called the Zabalin. They're, they're Coptic Christians. They're the minority in the country. And... Somewhere between 60 to 250,000 people live in Garbage City. And what they do, they're, they're the trash people for Cairo. They go out every morning and they pick up the trash through it. And what they do is they bring all of that trash back to where they live. They then sort. You've got kids right here. You've got adults. The entire family takes the trash and they sort it through the different rooms. The stuff that's food that's been thrown out that can be reused, well, that goes to the animals. It's estimated about 350,000 pigs once lived in Garbage City prior to kind of a purge that the Egyptian government did during an outbreak of swine flu. They take that and they go feed their farm animals with it. All the metal coming out of the trash gets pushed into the room where the kids and husbands and wives are sorting all the metal. The plastics are taken to another room. Now, what's amazing about this this is a kind of a side note, is that Cairo has the most efficient trash pickup system in the world. 90% of the trash picked up in a city of 20 million people is reused and recycled. Only 10% of the trash picked up ultimately gets thrown away. It is an amazing statistic. No advanced city in the world comes close to what Cairo's done accidentally through these people who live in the slums. But one of the things as you drive through Garbage City, I've driven through these streets, is as you drive through these streets, you realize that these people have no electricity. They have no plumbing. They have no basic services that you and I would expect you would have, even in a kind of a modern city like Cairo at certain parts. They lack it all. And you, you drive through this and you see kids playing, and they're playing soccer, but it's not with a soccer ball, it's with a can. And they're kicking it back and forth and they're laughing and they're smiling. But the most amazing part of Garbage City, we have another picture that gives you a vantage point of the city as a whole. So what you're looking at right there, um, all those buildings, is Garbage City. Most of those buildings don't have windows. 
There are people living inside of them. They're brick structures. It's a massive area. It's almost six kilometers square. And, um, and all these people are jammed inside of it. But what's amazing is the point where you take this kind of picture. I've stood up on this hill. Right behind this hill is uh, this really beautiful spot. See, Garbage City sits at the base of what's called Makatam Hill. And um, there's a, a Tunisian-born artist who did this amazing piece of artwork there just recently. He, um, he'd kind of taken the similar journey that I had when I was there and appreciated what was going on in that setting and what we globally could learn from these people. So he approached them. He said, I'd like to do a piece of art. I'd like to, I'd like to show people something profound that you guys have understood already. And he entitled his artwork Perception. And this is what it looks like, this next picture. When you stand at that spot and you look straight out, what you notice is there's a certain vantage point where over 50 buildings come into alignment. And all the various graffiti that's been spray painted across all these 50 buildings comes into a clear picture to become one big piece of artwork, an Arabic script that quotes um, a pope from the third century who essentially said, if you want to see the sunlight, you need to first wipe your eyes. This idea of often we miss the beauty, we miss and lack the appreciation because we're not really looking at what we already have in front of us. But what makes this spot so profound, the reason he picks this spot, what was so moving about my time in Garbage City, because you can see the garbage on the roofs um, in that shot, um, is right behind this picture. So if you turned and you looked the other way, what you would see is this, this next picture. It's called the Church of the Cave. The people that live in Garbage City have hand-carved out of the side of a mountain a church building that has over that has 15,000 seats. There is service at that church every single day. These people, what have marked them their entire journey, what has birthed this church from one pastor who came into the slums and loved and served and breathed life. And as they, their faith became an important part of their life, what happened is the people began to see their lives differently. And to celebrate how their view of God shaped how they viewed everything else, they went to the very top of Garbage City and in the mountain carved out an amazing infrastructure. In a place where there is no electricity, where there is no water, these people made artwork and seats. And like all around you, when you stand in this thing, you're like, this is an incredible, incredible piece of handiwork. When I was in Cairo, I saw the pyramids and I saw the church of the cave within about 24 hours. And I'm telling you, what I saw in Garbage City and the church was more impressive than even the pyramids. Because what I saw there was the power of perception. What I saw there was how often I lose sight of what's truly needed for life and its enjoyment. And that so much of what I focus on is what I don't have, what I don't, all, most of my enjoyment is tied to things that I don't have in my life, and it just robs me. And yet I saw people laughing and smiling 
And even in the midst of what many of us would say is devastating and debilitating life circumstances, there was a true joy. And it comes from understanding that at the end of the day, the perception that Solomon wrote as the backdrop of Proverbs is that God is bigger than even our life circumstances. That God is greater than even the things that we don't have. And that Solomon understood this, that Solomon understood there was a perception that came when you start to understand that God loves me, that God's in control of my life. Life may not be the way I want it, but he's still in control of it. Because Solomon was actually born out of a relationship of envy. It wasn't just that he watched his sons, watched the, his father's sons and daughters destroy their lives through envy. Solomon was born out of this envious moment between David, his father, and a woman that was a wife of someone else. That David's envy drove David to kill a man and to take that man's wife as his own. And what happens when Solomon's born? He's born out of this envious relationship. It's kind of marked with all the scandal and all the kind of clout cloud that you would expect it to have. And what does God say when Solomon is born? God says, hey, I want to give him another name. Don't just call him Solomon. Call him Jedediah too, which means beloved of God. It means blessing. He's like, I want you to understand, Solomon, what your father, what your mother did doesn't have to define you. Where you've come from doesn't have to mark you. Where you are doesn't have to be the end of your life. Over Solomon, at the very beginning, Solomon was told, look, I know where you came from, but I still love you. And that for many of us, that powerful releasing freedom can happen when we look up to heaven and realize that heaven's already looking at us and that we're already loved and that the God who is good, who wants good for you, who's been planning good for you, has made sure every single day that you've had everything you've needed. You've never had a day where you woke up and you didn't. You're still here because he's up there. And that ultimately, when we take that step back, when we look up, when we see with that perspective, when we practice that meditation, then we're able to step into those moments. We're able to celebrate others and appreciate what we have. And in the end, in the end, we can say that while envy may be our enemy, it will not be, it will not have the victory. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.